Herb, I don't, want to, I don't want to insult you, but I thought that defense of irresponsible journalism was most patriotic. <laughs> on the other hand, an attack on libel lawyers may be going too far. <laughs> um, the last speaker is John F. Baker, who is the editor-in-chief of the Publishers Weekly. John? Okay. I'm sorry I have no uh, very uh, notable stories to tell about... Um, censorship of myself. Perhaps uh, writing about book publishing isn't uh, an occasion to provoke much of it. I can only think of two instances, both perhaps rather trivial compared to some of those we've heard today. On one occasion, we uh, interviewed uh, Erica Jong, and as she so often does, she said, fuck, out loud, and uh, we printed that as part of the interview, and uh, I was called on the carpet and uh, told never to print that word again in our pages. And uh, you might call that sort of uh, post-factum censorship, I suppose. Uh, on a much more recent occasion, we, um, um, as, as anybody who follows the publishing scene may have observed that uh, uh, Gulf and Western, which owns Simon & Schuster, seems to be making itself into uh, the largest publishing conglomerate in the world. And um, shortly after they acquired Prentice Hall... Um, we ran a rather hapless story about the, um, the fact that um, one of Prentice Hall's subsidiaries had um, fired about 40 people, and uh, it turned out to be more or less true. That the numbers may have been a little out, but close. Um, the real problem was that we said in the wake of the takeover, they fired about 40 people, whereupon Dick Snyder, who's a, a man who doesn't uh, mince words, called up in a fine rage and said, the hell are you talking about, you know, well, we were very close to them, and there's nothing to do with this, and they were having a terrible year anyway, and et cetera, et cetera. So we had to do another story, plus a little apology. Um, again, sort of post-factum censorship. However, since people haven't been, it seems to me, uh, discussing actual libel uh, a great deal in the course of the evening to date, uh, and I assume most of you here are working writers, I just wanted to uh, run down a few of the things that it seems to me... Um, as editor of PW, uh, some of the trends that seem to be at work in the, uh, in the book business at the moment. Um, in, a, in a current issue, in fact, we have a, an interesting piece, I think, called What Can You Say in a Book, in which we have a couple of dramatized scenarios, one dealing with a, uh, a non-fiction manuscript, an investigative piece of journalism, and the other, a novel in which uh, um, somebody complains that they have been... Um, recognizably created as a fictional character and in a, in a libelous manner. The introduction to this, which is by um, uh, Harry Johnston III, who's the, oddly enough, one of the legal counsel for Time, Inc., no significance otherwise, I think, um, said that examining recent cases involving libel for writers, the, the fact that... Um, the Times versus Sullivan case affords substantial protection to the publishers of defamatory material. does not seem to have changed substantially in the last few years. However, he said, there has been a notable erosion, erosion of procedural devices that accompanied Times versus Sullivan, particularly in the erosion of the summary judgment doctrine, whereby a case was presented to a judge who would then, on the, uh, the strength of what he saw as the evidence on either side, would probably dismiss the thing without ever coming to, uh, to trial and before a jury. 
Um, obviously, the uh, defendants in libel cases welcomed summary judgment because it generally meant that the plaintiffs had no reasonable case to offer. However, goes on Andrews, um, summary judgment is now no longer as readily available as it once was. And he points out that Chief Justice Warren Burger, in a recent case involving Senator William Proxmire, who used to uh, give a golden fleece of the month to uh, uh, people who were accused by him of defrauding the American taxpayer in one way or another. I should have thought he could have given one every day, but it was only once a month. Um, Chief Justice Warren Burger, says Andrews, seemingly went out of his way, Johnson, seemingly went out of his way in a footnote to suggest that summary judgment did not fit libel cases in which actual malice was the issue. Um, I don't need to get a great deal into that, I think, except that he does go on to say that um, plaintiffs' libel lawyers are getting much more clever and adroit with the rules governing libel cases. Uh, during the high watermark of protection for publishers from libel, it had been established that, for example, mere failure to investigate possibly libelous material before publication would not constitute actual malice, nor would a failure to seek out and interview a person being written about, uh, nor would failure to check out available morgue files or failure to reveal the sources of disputed information. Pretty hefty safeguards there, I think you'll agree. Not one of these things, he says, could justify an inference of publication with actual malice. But what he goes on to say, rather alarmingly, is what the libel plaintiff's lawyers uh, tend to do these days is to get a little bit on each of those things. He didn't interview the person. He didn't go to the morgue. Uh, he didn't um, attempt to talk to anybody about it. He didn't, um, wasn't willing to reveal his sources and say, well, judge, maybe any one of these standing alone doesn't work, but the presence of all of them together means that you shouldn't grant summary judgment, but instead should let the case go to the jury. I think in view of what's been said here tonight already, I don't need to say much about um, the fate of libel suits that generally go to the jury. The jury, for whatever reason, seems to have taken it into its head against the media lately. They seem to dislike people disputing what seems to them the common wisdom. A lot of smart alecky journalists, what do they know? Um, and a case that goes to the jury, more often than not, uh, results in a judgment uh, for the plaintiff and against the defendant, uh, which, curiously enough, are um, much more often than not reversed on appeal. So what you generally get in the pattern of libel cases these days is uh, if it goes to the jury trial, they find against the defendant in libel cases, it's then appealed, and in three cases out of four of uh, most of the ones that uh, Johnston surveyed, the um, appeals court ruled the other way. Here is a typical way of that a lawyer might attempt to um, restrain publication, cool or chill the authors and or publisher's ardor. This is a hypothetical letter, but I've seen a number like them. Um, this is, once again, in this piece that we just published, from the law offices of Dewey, Fulham and Howe. Uh, Dear sirs, <laughs> we are the attorneys of Joseph Highpower, about whom we are advised Lively Press is about to publish a book called Mr. Chairman. 
Based upon reliable information, we understand that the book is to contain accusations of immoral, unethical, and illegal activities on the part of Mr. Highpower, all of which charges are completely unfounded. Unless you agree to allow my client to review a copy of the final version of the manuscript prior to publication, to allow my client to correct these serious and damaging factual errors, we will be forced to pursue drastic legal remedies against both the publisher and the author. Uh, not by any means an atypical um, letter, and uh, in the course of the scenario that follows, the um, publisher's lawyer discusses with the author uh, his sources for what he's alleging in the book and ends by concluding that uh, they don't really need to show the manuscript. He thinks this is a fishing expedition, and uh, in effect he's telling the uh, lawyers to put up or shut up. I mention that as a fairly typical um, sort of case that can, can come up and very much chill or cool the um, uh, investigative zeal of uh, a journalist, a, an author, or a publisher. Um, let me run down very briefly a few of the, uh, the books that have been involved in one kind or another of censorship, either by libel or other forms of suppression in the last few years. These are ones that I picked out quite readily from our files. One of them you've probably heard about, uh, a book by Gerald Colby Zilg about DuPont called Behind the Nylon Curtain. Um, this was an interesting one because DuPont didn't sue for libel. What they did was uh, go to the book club which had chosen the book as, a, uh, as a, an alternate choice, I think, and suggest that perhaps this was an unwise alternate choice and persuaded the book club to drop it. Went to the publisher and said, um, with all sorts of dire threats, no doubt, that uh, it seemed uh, that this um, was a book that probably uh, wasn't, hadn't been worth publishing and perhaps they shouldn't um, make too much of an effort on its behalf. Uh, Zilg took the, uh, both the publishers and the book club to court, claiming that um, you know, they had been persuaded by DuPont to, in effect, drop the book. It was, in fact, published in a very small edition and promptly uh, disappeared. Um, he won the first um, round and then lost on appeal and uh, the story has a somewhat happy ending because uh, another publisher picked up the book and uh, Zilg added an enormous <laughs> amount of more um, accusatory information about uh, DuPont than he had in the first edition and uh, the book is currently in print and selling quite well. Um, the, uh, another interesting case was uh, a woman who wrote a book about Catherine Graham, the uh, publisher of the Washington Post. Mm. Um, she hadn't had much experience before, as Nana, as a book author, had written a few, uh, a few articles, and uh, the publishers were pleased enough. They didn't um, check anything out very carefully. <coughs> frankly, book publishers tend not to check things out very carefully. Uh, they're generally um, somewhat understaffed, and uh, the staffs are somewhat underpaid. And uh, they don't check things as carefully as, um, as uh, magazines and newspapers uh, are inclined to do, although, of course, you'd think they would have more time to do so. In any case, they took uh, most of what the author said about uh, Catherine Graham on trust and started sending the book around for, uh, for comment and so forth, and the manuscript fell into the hands of uh, some of the people who'd been mentioned in the book, including uh, Ben Bradley, the... Uh, uh, executive editor of the Washington Post, uh, who uh, promptly fired back a long memo citing 39 uh, errors about himself, which were quite provably uh, incorrect, and uh, 
uh, somebody whom she named as the deep throat in the CIA and the uh, Watergate case also uh, sent back a, an angry letter saying that this was demonstrably untrue and so forth and so on. And um, the publisher quietly walked away from the book. Um, once again, she got to keep a fair amount of money. She sued them for several million and uh, rather than drag it all out through the courts, the publisher settled, as I recall, for $100,000. Um, possibly more than she'd have got from the book had it been sold, who knows a peculiar ending in that particular case anyway, you've heard a fair amount about uh, Donald Freed's book uh, Death in Washington uh, I should mention his publisher Lawrence Hill an extremely uh, courageous publisher in, uh, in Connecticut who uh, believes in fighting all the way it looks at the moment, the way the case is going as if uh, it will turn out to be a major victory for people in the um, the CIA banding together and uh, attempting to intimidate anybody writing about them. Another peculiar uh, case not long ago, which never really made it to the courts but uh, caused somewhat of a flurry in publishing circles, was a book called The Media Monopoly by uh, a media critic called Ben Bagdikian, um, a copy of which came into the hands of, um, uh, once again, Mr. Snyder at Simon & Schuster. Um, Bagdikian had uh, suggested somewhere in the book that some uh, controversial book about Gulf and Western had in fact been killed by Simon and & Schuster and Snyder wrote back uh, demanding that uh, this part be withdrawn or else uh, a suit would follow and so forth. I don't think uh, the publisher, which was a small publisher in Boston, uh, gave way to, this, to any of this and uh, the book went forward as planned. There were, you've probably also heard, I think, about um, Kitty Kelly, Kelly's efforts to write a uh, a biography unauthorized of Frank Sinatra and his uh, equally enthusiastic efforts to stop it. Uh, once again, with the threat of a large suit and all sorts of what uh, uh, subsequently seems to have been um, considerably tainted evidence. Uh, you know, people calling up with funny voices and uh, saying that she'd never interviewed them when in fact she hadn't pretended to and so forth. Um, once again, quietly dropped in the end and uh, she is, as far as I know, going forward with that book. Uh, another case recently involving the, gov the governor of South Dakota who is suing Peter Matheson and his publisher for uh, repeating a lot of uh, derogatory information about him by some Indians in South Dakota. Um, that case is uh, going all over the shop because he wanted it tried in South Dakota. Viking won, his publisher won the uh, right to transfer it to New York. Um, he also lost in an attempt to sue the booksellers who had sold the book and uh, at the moment he seems to be losing on all counts but the, the case itself isn't over. Uh, another quite interesting recent case of whom uh, I believe a couple of the uh, participants are here involves uh, uh, a former CIA agent in, in Iran called Kenneth Love and uh, a document uh, he wrote about the overthrow of Mossadegh uh, and the installation of the Shah of Iran which was uh, used by Jonathan Quitney in a recent book called Endless Enemies. Uh, Love is suing, once again, Quitney for, uh, for use of what he calls unauthorized use, as I understand it, of, uh, of that document. The publisher of the book is here, and uh, I believe Harriet has something to do with that too. These are a few examples of the sort of uh, cases that have involved books recently, some libel, some not. Uh, I don't want to uh, cut down too much on the question time, but I would like to throw out a few hints, perhaps, on uh, other ways other than libel suits in which, uh, or threats of same, 
uh, by which people can be somewhat intimidated. For instance, um, there's such a thing as um, this was discussed in a panel that I um, audited not long ago um, called um, Censorship of the Marketplace. If publishers don't think that the time is appropriate for muckraking books, for books that take a keenly critical look at what's happening in the country today, they probably won't be bothered to publish them, whether or not there are threats of libel involved. And the way most publishers these days read the current state of the country is that uh, it is selfish, self-absorbed, greedy, and generally not interested in seeing the status quo overturned. That may be wrong, it may be chicken, but that is what most publishers currently think. I was at the Frankfurt Book Fair last October, and uh, I remember walking around the stands with uh, one of the guys who runs South End Press, which is a, a feisty little radical publisher in Boston, mm. and um, saying that um, you know he'd been to Frankfurt before, and going around the stands of the Italian, French, and German publishers, they generally found uh, interest among them for picking up their books for publication in Europe, and uh, and likewise some properties that Southend might be interested in doing here, you know, about the Greens, about Greenham Common, whatever. He said he'd never seen such a completely apolitical collection of books, even from formerly involved publishers, as he saw uh, last October in Frankfurt. Perhaps rather alarming. Uh, another thing, another kind of Those censorship... American publishers? Hmm? American? No, um, European publishers as well. I'm suggesting, I guess, that... Uh, just as I think there isn't a great deal of controversial publishing going on here, so uh, the same thing seems to be true currently of former, um, enterprise, more enterprising publishers in Europe. Um, there's also such a thing as um, books that are important and significant being, by and large, ignored by the important reviewing media. And here, uh, uh, as so often is the case, because of its enormous visibility and power, the old uh, Times comes in for its lumps occasionally. Um, once again, a South End Press, a very uh, book, a very notable book uh, by Edward Herman and Noam Chomsky about uh, Amer the American presence in the uh, in the Third World over the years and some of the uh, things it's been up to there. Um, never has been reviewed by the Times, although it's obviously mo both of the authors are uh, major names. It was the only major review attention uh, it got for a long time in this country was a long review in the Village Voice, and. Uh, that can be another kind of um, putting away of a book because some editor doesn't like its thesis or doesn't uh, regard it as um, worthy of, uh, of discussion. And uh, I have to uh, plead guilty to that on occasion myself. You see, it can, I know we're all on the side of the angels here tonight, but it can work both ways. Uh, not long ago, a uh, uh, a small right-wing publisher in, uh, in Connecticut, not obviously uh, Lawrence Hill, uh, came to me with a, uh, um, a book that was clearly homophobic. I mean, it was by a man who, uh, in effect, saw the whole country as being uh, uh, rotted from within by uh, homosexuality and, uh, and claimed to quote various charts and results of surveys on what the average American felt about all this and so on and said, nobody is reviewing this book, and uh, it's censorship, and it's unfair. And I took a look at this book, and it seemed to me clearly inflammatory and uh, utterly unworthy. And uh, although it pretended to have a scholarly apparatus, it was clearly 
the sort of uh, scholarly apparatus you might, I think, see from uh, accuracy in media, and uh, <laughs> I declined to review it as well, because, once again, you're using your own judgment as to whether or not to give uh, visibility and thereby a certain amount of credence to something that was clearly on the, about the uh, level of the elders of the Protocols of Zion. Um, so I just want to leave you with the thoughts that those uh, are some kinds of censorship, not necessarily involving libel, but uh, simply ways in which perhaps authors are being less courageous <coughs> about what they want to write I think a number of publishers certainly being less courageous about what they want to publish and um, despite the efforts of a comparatively few uh, mainstream publishers, sometimes quite surprising ones like Doubleday, sometimes more expectable ones like Pantheon, but uh, despite those efforts I find the kind of in-depth reporting of major controversial issues, particularly shall we say, pursuing large corporations or very strongly uh, vested interests to be very much mm, diminishing these days. Um, there's quite a striking book coming out shortly called The American House of Saud by a, uh, an investigative reporter and congressional aide in Washington, which um, outlines in enormous detail the, um, some of the influence that... Uh, the Arab oil money has bought in Washington and elsewhere simply because of its promise of uh, vast fortunes to uh, companies that set up there and uh, work with them and so on. And uh, the publisher, who's a small publisher, as I say, uh, told me that uh, you know the book had been taken around by a reputable agent, and it's a reputable author, to a number of the major houses, most of whom fought shy of it for one reason or another. Not clearly because of its political stance, which uh, um, one would think in publishing... Uh, uh, a little Arab bashing wouldn't uh, by any means come amiss and uh, since, you know the, however um, most of the publishers involved turned it down not I think because they were legally afraid of it but because also the publisher uh, intimated to me they were anxious about uh, some of their um, links and unfortunately many of the large publishers uh, these days do have links that go out beyond the books they publish um, I think that's probably plenty for me, and um, throw it open to questions. Thank you. Well, I think from the panel, we've heard of a variety of attempts uh, by the government and others to engage in some subtle and some not so subtle efforts to censor publications. I think what we all want to guard against are any influences which limit information to the public regardless of its political content. Uh, I think the primary goals of the First Amendment are two, to provide as much access to information to the public, to assist people in making political and other decisions about their own lives, and secondly, the, self, the function of self-fulfillment to allow individuals the opportunity to express their own thoughts and ideas and to see them get currency in the society. And I think those two goals are the goals that we all want to see supported. Um, we'd like to open the floor to questions now from the audience. And if you would 
please identify yourselves and ask questions to um, members of the panel. Yeah, over there. Yes. Oh, okay. The, the meeting. Hmm? I'm, my name is Rosalind Kramer, and I'm a freelance reporter. I was talking to a group of uh, young reporters, young as far as I'm concerned, and I was trying to start a political discussion because Reagan had done something, and I just had to. <laughs> I had to discuss it. And I discovered they wouldn't say anything, and I kept on having known a lot of reporters and in the village and knowing that they always talk about politics, I tried to find out why they were all re retreating into the shadows and they said these guys were from the Daily News and the Post. And at least the guys from the Daily News said that they had been spoken, that an, their attorney had spoken to them and it, uh, he had told them that they can be sued for what's personally for what's on their mind and that this, I know that this goes back to some of the libel suits and it seems your personal, uh, what was your state of mind when you were writing this or something and I just want, none of you have brought this up but I would like to know what you think about this and also I would like to point out something, all, women's issues are all the time ignored but the pornography, the anti-pornography drive has been very important because it combines what the, the, the right wing does is take an issue, they combine it with something that people are sympathetic with. So they've combined censorship with pornography, which really horrifies women. And anyway, I would like to know if anyone has heard, uh, is, is aware of this, um, this what's on your mind as any kind of pressure in, on journalists or writers now. Bill, you want to? Well, the case you're talking about, I think, involves the, the Tony Herbert case primarily, and I'll say something about that because I feel very ambivalent about it as an absolutist against libel cases, but as a good friend of Tony Herbert's and someone who thinks that he was done wrong by CBS and who thinks that Barry Lando and, and Mike Wallace and, and uh, the program uh, did, in fact, slander him. Uh, the problem had to do with the development of the law around public figures requiring actual malice. Uh, malice is not always something that you can prove with documents or tangible evidence and the issue that raised the whole point in, in the Tony Herbert case had to do with the selection of interviews to run on the show. In a, in a nutshell, a particular incident in Herbert's book was raised, let's say, with 20 former members of his command. 19 of the 20 members said that all, all 20 were filmed. These were filmed interviews prepared in advance for possible use in the show. 19 of the 20 said the incident as described in Herbert's book was exactly true. The 20th said, no, that's a lot of crap, but it didn't happen like that. 
The first 19 were not used in the show. The 20th was used in the show. And Herbert's lawyers asked CBS lawyers, why did you discard those 19 who said he was telling the truth and show the one that said he was lying? And Barry Landau refused to answer that on the ground that this was an inquiry into his state of mind uh, and didn't apply. The Supreme Court, in the decision that I said I feel very ambivalent about, said that if you were going to say that the only way a public figure can sue for libel is to show malice beyond showing untruthfulness, then you have to allow him to inquire into areas which might tend to show the presence or absence of malice. Uh, and Herbert had some fairly clear cases where that question had to be raised, uh, where, where they were as, as slanted as what I'm saying. Uh, I'm not making this up, this one about 19 saying one way and one saying the other. Uh, there were a number of instances like that. That's, that's where it came from. I think the, the reporter you were talking to is totally uh, overstating it because uh, even as bad as I think the, the, uh, the impact of the decision may be, that had to do with a completed editorial process. That didn't have to do with the, the preliminary inquiry. In fact, the preliminary inquiry, according to the, the CBS people, was exactly the opposite in that case. They said they started the program because they thought that Herbert was right in his accusations about war crimes in Vietnam and the Army was wrong. Uh, and then they said that they, they changed their mind and decided to go after him. Uh, I don't know if other people have, have comments on it. It's a, it's a difficult one because I, uh, as I said, that, that was a case where I thought that, that Herbert was clearly uh, destroyed by a show which un unfairly destroyed. Victor, did you want to add something? Well, I would just say I think you're right. It's the malice requirement in the Sullivan case that, that has the courts looking at people's state of mind. And, uh, but to me, the answer to that is to say that public figures should not be allowed to sue for libel. That's one of the things you get up, give up when you go into public life. Yes, over here. Yes. Perhaps if those of you who want to ask questions would like to get over near the microphone, um, we could move along so that more of you can speak. My name is Bob Gibson. I'm a broadcast journalist with some non-commercial radio stations. Uh, there's been a lot of coverage uh, of the censorship of the news media prior to the U.S. invasion of Grenada. Something which has not received uh, as much attention is the fact that the day before that invasion occurred and the American press was barred from covering it, uh, Jessica Savage and her, her escort for the evening uh, tragically died after their car overturned in five feet of water. Now, what I have always felt personally is that uh, uh, that, that uh, her death was not an accident and that basically it served as a message to the Cy Hirsch's of the world that from now on they had better keep their noses out of, our, of uh, the military's wars, that if they didn't, they would wind up in the drink like Jessica Savage. Now, Ms. Savage had basically been covering a number of very sensitive subjects on her frontline program. She'd been covering the involvement of government agents in the Greensboro shooting in which Klan and, and Nazi party members gunned down some uh, CWP people in uh, 1979. She'd been covering the use of Nazi war criminals by our intelligence system, notably Klaus Barbie, the Vatican banking scandals, which through the associated P2 Lodge goes back to the CIA and other Western intelligence agencies. 
Uh, if I could be so bold as to impose my will on the members of the panel in a very small way, what I would like to hear are two things. I would like a simple yes or no reply from each member of the panel <laughs> to the question, do you think Jessica Savage was murdered? And if you would then follow that, your, your one question, your, your one word answer with a discussion of whether or not, uh, such discussion that you feel would be in order. Well, we're certainly not going to require the panel members to answer in any particular way, but if anyone would like to address that issue, uh, they can. Don't know. Don't know. Yes. Hello. My name is Felicia Levin. I'm a citizen. And, well, I want to ask two questions. One, I read that Le Monde is going under or went under or will go under, and will that have a tremendous this effect upon the news coming from France, and also the new thing of uh, capital taking over AABC. Will that have a very deleterious effect upon uh, news from ABC? Will that be an intimidation? Thank you. Would anyone care to answer me? Would anyone care to comment on... It's the zeitgeist, isn't it? Mr. Murdoch is taking over 20th Century Fox, and Mr. Casey... Mr. Casey did not give up his holdings. It's a very well-known researcher, historian, Mae Brussel, uh, had some... Uh, showed me a clipping just before we started, and um, Mr. Casey, though he no longer sits on the board of directors of Capital News Service, which now controls ABC, but he did not give up his holdings in it until last year something in itself which is quite extraordinary. That's four years into his uh, administration at CIA. Um, the winds whipping about CBS, uh, all these things. You know, uh, whether Jessica Savage or anyone else uh, was murdered uh, on, on that story or the China Syndrome story or the, that sort of story, uh, it's hard to tell. I, in the following the much more boring, the quotidian nature of these secret police files, uh, it's hard to tell where the story ends. I found out quite by accident, for instance, that um, Clive Barnes, for the, I believe, the one and only time in his career, certainly at the New York Times, he was, had a paragraph from his theater review of the play Inquest uh, removed. And when he confronted an editor, and it wouldn't have, you wouldn't have known it, by the way. The review was very long and detailed and, and praiseworthy. You wouldn't have thought anything particularly was missing. But I understand that what he said was that if the asseverations of the play were true, then the Rosenberg case deserved further investigation. He was told you couldn't, according to the material I read, that that couldn't be put on the theater page of the New York Times. Um, he did not make a public issue out of this, and I did not find it out from him. And so I'm very vague on the details. But it's hard to know where pressure ends. We've heard tonight examples of how it begins and threshold questions and uh, conflicts that arise, and especially the, uh, the decision-making process that the nation has discussed was a good way of seeing, in this case, how an editor in good faith thinks about uh, questions. But where they end, how it ends, that's difficult. And where, for instance, in the question of the Warren report, it is very difficult to tell where violence ends and where outright disinformation begins. 
And in fact, since disinformation and misinformation is a function of the secret police and covert action, it, it is perhaps impossible to separate it from outright violence and psychological warfare whose end is, as in the case of Chile, not just to drive a nation mad, but to bring, to bring uh, soldiers out of their barracks ready to slay uh, in great numbers their fellow countrymen. What about hey, France? Let's, let's, let's let the next, uh, next person ask that question. Next okay. question. Thank you. <laughs> My name yes. is Mae Brussel, and Don wanted me to come this evening just to share one document from the government. He brought some documents about the government. And before, I have several. Regarding the press and the way books come out, I take about 10 papers a day, so I recognized a book review when Mark Lane's book, Rush to Judgment, was printed. And it was in the East Coast, and I live in Carmel, and our Monterey Herald had the same book review, and I realized that it was sent across the country to put down this book. And I called a man, a Mr. Wolf, and asked him if he had read the book, and confronted him with the information because it was identical to this other review. And I wrote a letter to the editor defending the right of Mark Lane to write Rush to Judgment. And a few years ago, when I wrote to the FBI and other agencies under Freedom of Information, the reason they started a file on me in 1967 was because I wrote a letter to the editor defending Rush to Judgment. Mm -hmm. And Don, and Don said this evening, just bring this one item. Jim Garrison had arrested Clay Shaw for a part in the killing of John Kennedy. And I went to New Orleans just to see what he had, because I had been doing the research up to that point since Kennedy was killed. And as soon as I left New Orleans, this was among my files from the FBI. And I think this is pertinent to what Don was trying to tell you and what he's done through the years. As of September 18, 1967, that's a long time ago, they said, due to the fact that Mrs. Brussels has been in contact with Jim Garris in New Orleans, and has made public comments considering the assassination investigation of John Kennedy, we have to disseminate to every agency of the Secret Service, State Department, FBI, about May Brussel. And it's, then they went on to say that my crime at that time in 1967, Mrs. Brussel in the past has expressed great alarm over the fact that the United States is becoming fascist due to her thinking, which she has expressed publicly. <laughs> and I hadn't even printed an article uh, until Watergate in 1972. This is 1967 that I said among my friends, no one hardly knew me except the researchers. I hadn't been on a radio show. I've been on 14 years, but it hadn't started then. Due to the fact that she expresses publicly, Dallas and San Francisco FBI are to incorporate information into letterhead memorandums suitable for dissemination to the Department of the U.S. Secret Service. And it was to J. Edgar Hoover regarding the Kennedy assassination. So the fear of fascism in 1967 was enough to start a file on me at that time without ever writing anything or being on the air. The first new premature anti-fascist. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, next uh, question. Uh, I am uh, Lathrop Voicepe. And I want to know if this is considered sort of a victory for the press 
the, the newspaper Spotlight was sued by E. Howard Hunt, and the jury awarded them uh, $600,000 because Spotlight had quoted Machete, am I pronouncing the name correctly? Victor saying uh, Hunt was a, might be involved in the uh, Kennedy assassination. So the Spotlight just quoted another author, and so they were sued by E. Howard Hunt. Uh, Spotlight uh, had the, took the case to court again, and in this case they won. And now for the past five or six weeks, they have been having, each issue they've been having uh, all this stuff about the Kennedy assassination, trying to uh, bring it back to the public's attention. I just want to ask someone if you think that that decision of the jury was a sort of a victory uh, for the you know freedom of the press. Well, I think what we want to see is verdicts that allow the press to publish uh, as much information as possible and to make it available to people. So if, to that extent, it's a victory for the free press. Yes, sir. My name is Tom Lyons. I'm a citizen. Um, Mr. Mitgang made the statement that he did not think libel suits would deter serious investigative reporting. A couple of days ago, I read that the paper in Alton, Illinois, which had to make a $1.3 million um, payment on a libel suit, has cut down on investigative reporting. The suit was com and I don't see how newspapers can, with these hefty judgments, continue to support serious investigative reporting. And I was wondering if Mr. Mitgang would respond to that. Well, there was a little item about uh, in Publishers Weekly that uh, three or four uh, libel cases uh, again, had been thrown out on summary judgment. But even if we were talking about this before, uh, but uh, even if uh, that is not so, uh, uh, yes, I agree, and that's what we've heard from just about every panelist here tonight that there is an atmosphere encouraged and emanated from Washington uh, against uh, the press. And so when that happens, naturally you're going to get more uh, efforts uh, to uh, sue networks and newspapers. The point I ended up with, however, was that in spite of that, I think that there are going to be reporters who are going to say, and editors uh, and publications, mostly small, and I hope large, who will say publish and be damned and uh, take their risks. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, hi, my name is Michael, and uh, I want to address this to Mr. McGang also. Um, as far as uh, you speaking about uh, how reporters are somewhat coerced or co-opted to being team players, I'd be interested to know uh, a further elaboration of exactly what strategies or techniques the State Department or the administration uses on reporters to make them uh, feel dependent upon official news and also to feel devoted to giving the administration a certain um, uh, response, a favorable response. And I would like to hear maybe more elaboration. Well, you've just there. had appointed in the Reagan administration a, uh, a journalist who is obviously 
a right-wing partisan, Pat Buchanan, learned to lie under the Nixon administration <laughs> and uh, uh, continues. Uh, I don't think he's going to change uh, his spots uh, for Mr. Reagan. Uh, from the reading of his column in, uh, that ran uh, in the, the New York Post, uh, you could see that this was uh, uh, not a, a, an objective journalist, but a cheerleader for the administration. Now, if that is your news entry to uh, the people in government, uh, some people are going to be cut out from interviews uh, and from access to public officials. So you're going to have to go around corners and then others who get on the team, to come back to that expression, uh, will be getting that uh, private interview uh, with the president or with somebody else. You know it uh, from reading that uh, George F. Will and William Buckley have special access to the White House. Now, that's a signal that would pervade every uh, branch of the government. But uh, I'm sure that uh, uh, those who Mr. Uh, uh, Buchanan considers hostile, and as the papers reported this week by Mr. Meese, if they show ethical responsibility, uh, euphemism that I talked about, then they are not going to have the same kind of access. Just makes your work a little harder, but you can still get it. Um, I'm afraid it's after 10 o'clock, and we're just about up, so we have time for one more question. And, uh, and I know we could all talk about this subject for a long time. We lose the well, my question is really addressed to everyone in this room who writes for a living. Uh, I'm, I'm a, my name's Tom Congdon, and I've been a, a publisher, very definitely a small publisher for five years, a book publisher. Uh, when I wasn't a small publisher, that is when I worked for big publishers uh, in, in, the, in the great old 1970s, when it seemed quite possible to publish wonderful books uh, attacking things very vigorously. I think one of the proudest books I did was a book by uh, Harriet Dorson's distinguished uh, husband, uh, Norman Dorson. It was one of the very first books that dared to attack the FBI. It was called Investigating the FBI. And Robert Heilbrunner uh, did a book called uh, In the Name of Profit, Profiles in Corporate Greed. And, and uh, we, we, we got by that one. And, and uh, a book on industrial slaughter uh, called Muscle and Blood. Uh, in those days, it seems to me uh, not just publishers were interested in issues, but so were writers. And I ask you who write, where are the books? Uh, I, I, really good, strong stuff. And I, I wondered if you all wouldn't admit to being somewhat chilled, perhaps not by uh, uh, the Reagan Reaganite frown so much as by your own commercial ambitions. Any response? I would say, yeah, my, my response, Tom, would be if you, st if you stay <laughs> facing the audience and ask everyone there who has a book that uh, 
meets your criteria to raise his or her hand, I'll bet you that you get hands raised and then see whether you're willing to read their manuscripts. Better right? yet, give them your address. <laughs> well, I would ask that question. How many people here have books that they think meet Tom's? Here, look, look. <laughs> Just a minute. This is a room. This is one room. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to publish good books. <laughs> well, I want to thank the panel and thank all of you for your attention. Keep on writing. How? How? I don't know. This is the finished on the team. I guess they must have to give up the whole or something. What is this for? I've got a nice one. I can really show up.